The world of ancient Rome was like a confused sea, rising waves like warring bands, crashing into and over one another, exploding into tumult and foam. The sea of Rome needed a direction, a tide to control and calm her. When Constantine rose to power in 312 AD, he brought a steady hand to the Roman people and for a time calmed her. But another people inside Rome needed the firm hand of leadership. The Christian church had also been in turmoil. Christians had been hunted like animals, her bishops used for sport and entertainment of the masses. The Christian church in her young life had experienced little peace peace that is required to continue to solidify unity in doctrine. When the new Emperor Constantine made Christianity a legal religion, she gained the peace required to unite. The church had solid foundations, but new corruptions continued to assail her. Gnosticism had been a danger for hundreds of years. Then modalism, in response to Gnosticism, swung the pendulum to the other extreme. One presbyter was a rising star in his attempts to unite the church's doctrine around the issue of the Trinity. He was a prominent leader in denouncing modalism, which taught that God would take on different modes of his being. This man was charismatic, an excellent communicator and poet. The method of teaching that spread most effectively, though, were his adaptations of common Roman work songs. Constantine said the following, about this presbyter's music. He resorted to composing psalms and ballads for sailors and millers, as well as songs of the kind that donkey drivers are accustomed to sing on their journeys. His charisma, poetry, and music would not have been an issue if he had been teaching right doctrine, but it wasn't right. In an overreaction to modalism, this presbyter was teaching that God didn't take different modes but were actually separate beings. He taught that God the Father created God the Son. He taught there was a time when he, the Son, was not. This doctrine named after the presbyter Arius became known as Arianism. The split in the church grew more heated. Division was looming. The Emperor Constantine was fighting to keep the Roman Empire together and was now facing a split in the newly legalized Christian church. Desiring peace in the church, Constantine called for the first ecumenical council in Nicaea. 318 presbyters from around the Roman Empire traveled to Nicaea to attend this council. Imagine the amazement of the presbyters in attendance that had survived the worst persecution in church history from the hands of a different Roman emperor Diocletian some years earlier, many bearing the scars of beatings and chains from that persecution, were now in attendance at a Christian council that was called, attended, and hosted by the Roman Emperor Constantine himself. At this council, the church denounced Arius and his teachings as heresy, and released the following creed in response to his heretical teachings. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. 
eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. The King's Hall podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. Welcome back to the King's Hall. I am joined. Well, first of all, my name is Brian Sove. Yeah, Brian, welcome back to my podcast. Uh, it's uh, good to have you. Wait a second. Hang on. <laughs> I was going to say I'm joined by two kings, but you know what? Let me rephrase that. I'm joined by a king and a jester. I think you're joined <laughs> by just... a president and a treasurer. It's true. You know what, gentlemen, gentle listeners, when they made the legal organization that uh, owns the King's Hall podcast, I am the president. They made Eric the president. And who's they? Me. Dan. Dan. I did. Dan, are you a they, them, or? No, I'm just kidding. Authority, and then what am I? What am I, Dan? Secretary. The secretary. Authority flows to those who take responsibility. You know what's really funny? Is, <laughs> and away from those who don't, which is why Brian is the I secretary. I think that's what it I, think I am that's what the it says. president of other corporations. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I just felt bad that Brian. I've never been the president of a corporation. I don't feel bad for Brian. Yeah. I feel what, bad. You know what me. I do feel bad about? When I was handed the show notes for this yeah, show, yeah, Dan, this is like a phone book. What the heck? I mean, this, we've this got, is going to be twenty-seven parts. You know guys. what? Brian said we have twelve theses guys. that we are going to be going through. This, these and guys. you know what? I think it's twelve pages. The listeners, and we are, have gone through three. The listeners are here for it, They're right? Listeners, back it. me up. Back me. Well, literally, up. they yeah. are here for it because this is the podcast. That's so. true. That's true. If they're here for it, definitionally. As if they're a listener, definitionally they are here for it, they, or, or they were, or here they for were, it. and are no longer listening to this. Well, welcome back, everybody. We are continuing in part three of "To Be Determined." No, I think I think we're going to wrap it up. You know what? I, I I'm going to go on record. I think we're going to wrap it up today. I this section. Don't believe you. We're going to find out. We're in part three of our segment within this season on city fathers, on Christian political theology, and really sketching out a vision as we aim to build this cathedral of the new Christendom of what will the state look like, or, or what are some distinctive features that we ought to see in the civil government, the civil sphere of government, as this new Christendom cathedral goes up, because you can't ignore it. It's an important part. It's one of the spheres of government that God has established. We've talked about already that civil government isn't just a result of the fall. It's actually a positive good when it's uh, established in obedience to God and living in obedience to God within its established domain. So 
we need to talk about it. We need to uh, talk through what does it look like, what ought it to look like. And we've given you 12 theses, and, and friends, I'm not going to repeat all 12 of them. Uh, even though I did in the first two episodes on this in this section, uh, you can go back and listen to those first two parts. We're going to be picking up in our eight, or, sorry, our eighth thesis out of the 12. And um, let me read the last 12, and then we'll we'll begin to deal with them here and probably finish too, right, guys? Uh, I doubt it. Okay. All right. So the eighth thesis in our thesis, 12 theses on civil government and city fathers is that godly city, city fathers rule with explicit awareness of the covenantal nature of their office. Number nine, godly city fathers are to be defenders of the Christian cultus. Number 10, godly city fathers are to uphold the principles of localism and subsidiarity. Number 11, Christians should live truly political lives, as the Greeks defined it, a life enmeshed in the affairs of the polis in a way that contributes to the good of his neighbor, not lives of barbarism. And then finally, godly city fathers are to know what is in their sphere of authority and possibly even more importantly, what is not. So gentlemen, are you ready? I was born ready. I could tell. Jump into the covenantal nature of the office of the civil magistrate. I was just put to sleep. I thought, you know, we'd have some entertainment factor to this yeah. podcast, but I'm well, ready me, to take a Dan, nap. Dan, let me, let me help you out with some Tom Cruise energy because Top Gun 2, I mean, the guy's like 107 and he's still... Last movie of the 20th, 20th, 20th century. Tom Cruise energy right here. I'm a Tom Cruise! It was actually Will Ferrell. Um, that's time. Well, yeah, but it's blasphemously praying. To also, Tom Cruise, Cruise using witchcraft only to get the fire off me. Tom Cruise would. Tom Cruise would. Brian was talking about demons on Twitter, and uh, pretty sure the witchcraft of Tom Cruise would qualify. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, as that. But we're trying to channel a certain energy, a king energy, king energy, king energy. Not Tom Cruise energy. <laughs> Not Tom. Yeah, Dan man. is so disappointed <laughs> in the way that this has gone so happened. far. So uh, godly city fathers <laughs> rule with explicit awareness right. of the covenantal nature of their office. Say, Brian, you wrote that thesis. And, <laughs> yes, um, I did. For those of our listeners that have children around the age of nine or ten, say, sure, sure. maybe could you explain what that thesis means to them? You know, in a language yeah, sure. that they might understand. For, Absolutely, Dan. For our listeners, absolutely, and not for me. Yeah, so <laughs> in the words of O. Palmer Robertson, a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And I think all the 9- and 10-year-olds can agree with that, right? Mm. Can yeah. I get an amen? <laughs> can I get an amen from the 9- and 10-year-olds? I didn't know O. Palmer Robertson was still alive. I don't know if he is. He spoke at the last PCA General Assembly. What? And Yeah, Zach Garris posted it, and I was like, wait, you two are still living? Yes. I'm sorry, that and was a Jim Carrey- Grinch quote there. But Octoritas, because they said when he spoke, everybody was like, yeah, do what he says. That's right. Yeah, that's right. He had that, is that authority? Octoritas, yeah, authority. Yeah, authority, yeah, yeah, he was, he has that vener- venerable age. He was a city father. Gravitas, yes, it goes, it goes, it stands with him when he approached the microphone in his old age. So, uh, yeah, when we're talking about the covenantal nature of the, the, of the civil magistrate and of civil rule, we're saying essentially that Civil rule ought to have an explicitly covenantal nature that would involve God, recognized as God, the people that are being governed, and the king 
congressman, senator, or ruler, and that the king, senator, ruler ought to be understanding his role as being covenantal. So I'm confused, Brian. Why are you trying to force your religion on me? I actually believe in forcing my religion on others. No, but it it really is. It's one of my religious beliefs that I want to force on others (laughs) is that you should, yes. It really is interesting, though. So we had Roe v. Wade, big decision this Mm -hmm. week. Yeah. Um, One of the things that was talked about from the crying Karens on the left was why is it all of a sudden these conservative judges are trying to force, quote unquote, force their religion on us? And and there's kind of a couple things here. Number one is the assumption that there's a neutral sphere, Mm -hmm. that there's like the state is somehow not covenantally, because I think that's the other side of the argument. People, even in the Christian camp would say the civil magistrate is not in covenant with God. Mm -hmm. And you're saying the opposite. Yeah. I'm even saying that we, we see prophesied in places like Isaiah chapter 19, verse 21, speaking about the Egyptians, for example, that the Egyptians in the era of the new covenant would know the Lord and they would vow a vow unto the Lord, we're even told, and shall perform it. So when we look at the Old Testament vision for what's going to be taking place under the era in which Christ is reigning on his throne, right, where Christ has been established on his throne, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, on my holy hill, as God says, that one of the implications is that not just individual human beings floating around like isolated atoms, Mm. but even families and peoples and nations would turn to the Lord. And and we can see this even in places like, uh, for example, Psalm 22 is another place. Let me see if I can pull up my, some of my references here. We're told that all the ends of the, the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, that all of the kindreds of the nations would worship before God because the kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor among the nations. We're told in Isaiah 9 that of the increase of his government of peace, there shall be no end. Uh, We're told that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I mean, as we we, we come through to the book of Revelation in the New Testament, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, where we see even a category for national covenant being established there. For example, we see uh, question 62 here in, I believe this is Fisher's Catechism, which was an exposition of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. He he includes this question. uh, When doth such a social vow commonly get the name of a national covenant? He says, answer, when the representatives of a nation or the better part of them concur in the in a covenant of duties as ingrafted upon the covenant of grace. And he quotes Jeremiah uh, chapter 50, where it says, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, saying, come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. Uh, and then he goes on in, in Fisher's Catechism to talk about some of these passages, like Isaiah 19, 21, 2 Chronicles 15, Nehemiah 9, and talk about these duties where peoples and nations and the leaders of those nations uh, explicitly rule with the awareness of their office being given to them by God and not a generic God. 
For the project of this season to be successful, the project of seeing a new Christendom built, there will need to be thousands and thousands of Christian men and women who are equipped to stand for the truth of Scripture against the errors of both the liberal church and the pagan culture. This is one reason we're so glad to be partnering with our sponsor for this season, Reformation Heritage Books. Reformation Heritage Books offers a large selection of helpful and theologically rigorous resources on everything from biblical theology to history to blue-collar family discipleship, the type of library and resources that could make the kind of men and women I just described grounded in the rich heritage of the Reformed faith. We'd like to highlight one resource in particular, their Family Worship Bible Guide, that presents rich devotional thoughts on all 1,189 chapters of the Bible, including searching questions to promote conversation and to help you in leading your family in such a way as to say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Tap the link in the description of this episode to pick one up today. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a phenomenal point, Brian, but Dan, it brings up the question for me, if City Fathers are supposed to be explicitly aware of the covenantal nature of their office, who would be the ones in society reminding them, making them aware that that is a covenantal duty? Well, yeah, I think you have multiple fronts on that. First, you have the fathers of families. Yeah. Who these, in in our representative republic, who are representing them. Mm-hmm. And also the church is to inform the city, uh, the state, excuse me, the state as to what is the law of God that they're supposed to uphold. But, you know, when I, when I read this thesis, the thing that I read was godly city fathers must fear the Lord. Yeah. They must fear the Lord. And especially in positions of authority, you know, on a different project that Eric and I are doing, the wilderness warrior, we're going through the story of endurance with Ernest Shackleton, where there's a shipwreck crew there out on the ice in Antarctica. And at one point, the captain, Ernest Shackleton, he has to leave his men in this crazy journey across the sea, the the most dangerous sea in the world, in a 22-foot boat. And he he has all of his men left behind, most of his men left behind on on an island that are depending on him to go get help. And he knows that if he fails... If he dies, he is going to be a curse to those men. They're never going to be found. Nobody will know that they're, they're alive. They're going to die. In the same way, city fathers should have the awareness of the fear of the Lord because there are people that are depending on them that God will either bless through their work yeah. and the fear of the Lord or will curse his people through his disobedience to the Lord. That's right. And, and so— we talked earlier about how uh, a good government operating well, it's like freshly mown grass at the dew descends. That's blessing, right? Yeah. There's peace. Yeah. But the same could be said about a civil government that does not fear the Lord. That's right. And does not obey him as the deacon or the servant of the Lord. He will yeah. actually bring covenantal cursing upon his people. Yeah. Well, and this is why I think covenant lawsuit is so important in the prophetic writings. Yeah, which basically are all in the Old Testament. They're all pointing back to Deuteronomy. Yeah, the, the in, curses and saying, blessings. You know, the prophets are reminding the people, the governors, the officials, everyone of their covenant obligations. And I guess my point with it is, we need to be in our churches as pastors. We need to be calling fathers, That's and right. we need to be calling political public officials. You are bound in covenant to obey God. That's right. 
But I think what we see is like the Gospel Coalition and other groups who have really stressed, hey, that's not our concern. We don't need to worry about the civil sphere. And so let those politicians go do whatever they do, which, by the way, is not good. Yeah, that's right. And when we, when we look at a lot of people probably hear this and they're like, I get what you're saying, but do the scriptures talk like this? Yeah. Like where there are national covenantal blessings and curses. Well, can I, I, I want to say one thing yeah, about go it. Go ahead. And, and yeah, go ahead. And, and then I want to hear your answer. But like, even when you look at the, the prophets, mm-hmm. they're prophesying judgment on Moab, Edom. Like, yeah, they're not just talking to God's people. Nations as nations. Yeah, that's right. Oh, so, Jonah, Jonah to Nineveh. Yeah. And yeah. so like those nations are accountable to God. Rome was accountable to the Lord. Like, yeah, the the apostolic preaching of the early church, they were holding everyone. They said not just the That's Jews, right. but you people killed Jesus. That's right. Like everyone here is accountable. There was no category in Paul's mind when he's preaching where he says like, well, yeah, except the Greeks. I mean, they don't they don't have to obey God. Oh yeah, the Greeks. They're just uh, they operate basically just on the basis of their instincts and their conscience only. They don't have to obey. They're that, Stoics. And the thing is, even if they did do that, they ought to be able to recognize that like what Rome, Paul does in Romans 1 through 3, that they stand condemned before God and need, which is a covenant, that's a covenantal conclusion. Basically, I would need, because of my condemnation before holy God, which I know based on the light of reason, the light of conscience, even the light of nature, God's revelation that is clearly seen by all, that God is, even on the basis of that, the nation's ought to be able to understand that their only hope is to sue God for grace and for mercy is basically to petition God. So the scriptures do talk like this in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. I read the Revelation passage that the kingdoms of men have become the kingdoms of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see things like, think about Psalm 2. What is the heritage or the inheritance of Christ, of the Son? It's the nations. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Well, what if we keep reading in the Psalter and we get to Psalm 9? Well, we'll see that the wicked, not only will the wicked be turned to hell, but all the nations that forget God. Nations as nations will be consigned to covenantal curses if they forget God. Okay, well, what about the nation and kingdom that will not serve the, the, the people of God? Well, they will perish. Yea, the nations shall be utterly wasted, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 12. So over and over, this is a relentless theme of the Old Testament, that nations as nations who do not turn and worship to God, and especially in prophecy, in the era after this very key pivotal event has happened, which is the event wherein Christ tears down the dividing wall of hostility between the Jew and the Greek. In the Old Testament, Israel was the covenantal nation in a special, unique way amongst the nations. And yet one of the features and the glories of the new covenant is that Christ in his body has torn down the wall of hostility. And now, because he has died and has been buried and has been raised and has been enthroned, the Son of God from the right hand of the Father is asking his Father, give me the nations as my heritage, And now that wall of hostility is demolished. And so our duty is what? Matthew 28. It's to go and disciple the nations and baptize the nations and teach the nations to obey Christ. Sounds like nationalism. Yeah. Yeah. Nationalism is is good, actually. One of the questions I wanted to ask, Brian, is so uh, I read a book. It's uh, James Davison Hunter, How to Change the World or To Change the World. Um, It really expounds the Tim Keller view on this. Uh, it's not post mill. 
I know Tim Keller says, like, you know, supposedly post-mill, but they yeah. really treat it as, like, this neutral sphere. Yeah. Uh, where we're kind of, and he uses this language of, like, we're all sitting at a table, and we each bring our view, and Christianity is mm-hmm. one of them, and we should be content with that. We should be glad to participate in that sort of environment as Christians. Mm-hmm. We should not be telling people, hey, there's one true religion, repent, you pagan. Whatever. So so my question is, do you think that's right, and how would that play into number eight? Yeah, that's completely wrong. That's absolutely completely wrong. And that's the kind of wrong that demonstrates that you are ignorant of the language of the scriptures and particularly of the prophetic language. We have a type of Christian today who is followed in the footsteps of Marcion and has not been, steeped himself properly in the language and the hopes and the textures and the typological images that we see in the prophets as they describe the effects of the Messiah and his kingdom. And, and one of those things, to quote Thomas McCree, uh, when he, he, this is in a, a work, this is a, a late 18th century theologian. He's talking about civil authority in this um, quote. He says, the whole tenor of the declarations, promises, and predictions of the Old Testament lead to the conclusion that Christianity shall be owned, countenanced, and supported in a national way. God addresses the nations in a collective capacity, reproves them for their idolatry, and calls them to worship. And he cites some passages in Isaiah 34, 41. Is he a Christian nationalist? (laughs) Sounds like it. (laughs) See, See, what we have today is a state of affairs in which secularism, as a religious ideology, is countenanced and supported by the state, and what we ought to not only aim for, but actually expect to happen in the fullness of time, because of the promises of God in places like Isaiah and Jeremiah in the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament. And, and I mean, just the Psalms, time would fail to talk about all the places in the Psalms. We should actually expect for the state to actually be expected, expected to privilege the Christian faith explicitly and be, as we quoted in the last episode, nursing fathers to the church. Which is interesting because when you look at even the founding of our country, what so often gets peddled as separation of church and state, uh, it's clear that what they didn't mean is what we have in mind with secularism today. That's right. That's clearly not what the founding fathers were aiming at. Absolutely right. And you can see that in the fact that like the Establishment Clause is forbidding a federal or on the national level, uh, establishing of a state church or of a federal national church. But f- there were many years during the early founding when states actually had state churches, where they had established state churches. And they were like, yeah, here in, a, here in a, what's Pennsylvania, we're this. And it was a Christian church. It is interesting, too, because Luther being two kingdom, I think he was also in favor of a, uh, some form of state church as well. <laughs> Which is interesting when, when you go when you understand like a classic Protestant political theology, it, you you begin to see how far the there's a reason we call them radical two kingdoms or modern two kingdoms guys how far they've come in their conclusions from the original classical reformed two kingdoms doctrine, which is actually much closer to what we would talk about now, probably in terms of sphere sovereignty and things like that. Essentially, a classical Protestant political theology, and, and you're in danger anytime I say something like that, of I'm painting with a broad brush. You're going to find exceptions. But generally, it seems like the view that came out of much of this stream of 
theology is basically that the church is an institution instituted by God that has a specific sphere of authority and duties to which it's obligated to discharge, and that also the state is a, a sphere of authority that was instituted by God, and it has its own lane. Essentially, this is the 12th thesis, that it's supposed to stay in its lane, they, but that they're both instituted by God, and they both actually have obligations to obey the God of Scripture. Right, And I think that that's just kind of lost in, in a lot of our modern... We've been so secular, washed in secularism and these n- concepts of political neutrality that are just absolutely farcical. You cannot have political neutrality. Well, and I think there, there was a time where political neutrality seemed plausible or possible if you're talking about like the five years after Enlightenment interrupted Christian thinking. And mm. so there was still enough peace and order left in society that you're like, okay, maybe it won't be so bad. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like Roe v. Wade, a lot that's going on in the culture, I feel like the script is getting flipped here. Mm. And people are going, you know, you've heard a lot of people complain, oh, society is so polarized. I actually think it's a really good thing that society is polarized. Yeah. You had the whole boomer middle for 50 years who were yeah. milk toast, neutral, you know, just what are you? What do you believe? <laughs> yeah. I believe whatever's not going to get me in conflict. Right. So now, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like people are saying, I, I think I could be with this covenantal nature of the civil magistrate office. And yes, our Supreme Court justices should be legislating Christian morality. Do I think that that's the case right now? I think there's a growing movement. That's of that. what I'm yeah. saying. Here's what I... to. I know this is not exactly the direction of our outline, yeah, so you're fine. it Go could be it. could be my fault. But I, I think we would rem- be remiss to not bring this up. We brought up the duties of the civil magistrate to fear God because of covenant blessings and curses and their standing before God. Yeah. And you asked earlier, Eric, whose responsibility is that to remind them? Yeah. And then you brought up examples of how the church is actually not just failing or neglecting the duty, but actively discouraging. Yes, that's right. Christians and the church to correct the magistrates. Yeah, it's wicked. And so what happens to those churches? If yeah. if the if the civil government, if the state is under the judgment of God for neglecting the covenant, then how much more the church? Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think there's going to be yeah. a, a severe judgment. Yeah, judgment begins with the household of God. And I think even what you know, Brian recently preaching in Matthew uh Matthew 23 Really, it's for the leadership of the church. And when I read the Pharisees, I, I uh, pretty much read like Big Eva today. In many ways, there's a, I think there's a lot of parallels. Mm-hmm. The the blind guides leading the church into perdition. Yeah, but look at Matthew 23. That's where Jesus. In, I'm not saying he actually comes unglued, but this is where you see the full force of his rage. Yeah, it, it, metaphorically, he's unglued. It's yeah. like. For, for certain people, he has a mix of compassion, truth, whatever. You get to Matthew 23, and it's woe to you. Yeah. Woe to you. Woe, woe to you. To These you. are curses. Yes. And there's no, like, but if you repent, it'll be all good. No, he's just heaping curses. Lays into it. On this leadership. So I think that's a, a parallel and a picture for what's coming for those in leadership who do not repent. And yeah. who, who don't fulfill this role. You're supposed to call the magistrates to faith. And to obey the law of God, yeah, and they're doing the exact opposite. Yeah, when we when we understand the nature of God's working in history as being fundamentally covenantal, 
we begin to see, because again, O. Palmer Robertson talks about a covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And, and you could add to that that it comes with attendant blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience to the covenant, mm. to God. So that, that, that goes all the way up and all the way down. I mean, that's true of an individual's life. If you, by grace and through faith, again, we're not talking about mere human effort autonomous from God. No, but if by grace and through faith you obey God and, and you read the Proverbs and you 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 take to heart all that Christ commanded and and you've been faithfully shepherded by pastors who take seriously the command of Matthew 28 to teach all that Christ commanded. Well, you're going you're going to as you increasingly see the light of God's revelation unfold in the dark in the, your darkened heart, you're going to see God's blessing. God God delights to bless his people. Well, let's say that you look at porn every day and you you know you backslide and you fall into the lusts of the flesh and the pride of life and you're not going to flourish. In fact, even the the tangible physical evidences of God's mercy and patience with you, things like the sun still coming up on you and rain still falling on crops and mm. you still having food to eat, those will turn to dust and ash in your mouth in the fullness of time. So it's like you, you then take that to the level of a family and you take that to the level of a church and you take that to the level of a state and you see how foolish it would be to all of a sudden arbitrarily when you get to the level of a nation be like, yeah, but none of that applies to nations. Well, what are nations? They're like a bunch of people. What do you think is going to happen to a people that kill their own, that, that run rivers of infant blood in their, in their gutters? Yeah, that's a really good point. So, so basically, and I think this can bring us into our ninth thesis. Basically, what we're saying is that God has given the church as a sphere of authority in the world a, a certain uh, collection of responsibilities and duties, things like the administration of the sacraments. Kings are not given that, right? The establishing of church discipline, kings are not given that. Uh, establishing right doctrine and worship, shepherding the saints into right doctrine. There are things that a pastor is authorized and actually commanded to do by God that a king has no business doing. He's just not called of God to do that in the same way that I'm called to father my children, and yet I wouldn't go and father Dan's children or Eric's children in the exact same way. I'm not. God put me in responsibility in one place. So we would say the state is also responsible for a certain collection of duties and responsibilities. And it is no less directly established by God than the duties and sphere of authority of the church. It has responsibilities for the maintenance of justice, for establishing order, mainly through things like retributive justice, enforcing contracts, punishing the wrongdoer, praising the good. And obviously, I'm using Paul's language here, Paul would have no conception of wrongdoing and good that is not defined by God. He's not talking about some nebulous, man-made sort of thing. He's talking about uh, God's standards of good and God's standards of wrongdoing. So so this brings us to number nine. Uh, well, well, first, let me make sure, agree on that, right? Any final thoughts before we move on to talking about the, the state as a nursing father? No, I absolutely agree with that, Brian. Agreed. All good. All Moving good. on. All good. And, and, and one of the things that, that I'm at least interested to do in this kind of conversation is to attempt to build some bridges between things like uh, the magisterial reformers and classic Protestant political theology, and even guys who are more modern, you know, they're more into the late 20th century theonomic thought, 
and maybe Vantillian stuff. What I'm trying to do is say some things that I think all of us should agree on. No matter how you thread the needle when you get to like, okay, when the state is enforcing this standard, are they like just one for one mosaic polity, the mosaic law? Are they general equity, like more of the what the confessions talk like? Which are we doing? And I'm trying to say, these are things that are underneath that the answer to that question, that we should all just say, if we're Protestant and particularly Protestant and Reformed Christians, this should be 101 level stuff. This should be like Christianity 101 level stuff. Which brings us, unless Eric, I just saw you had a look on your face like you were ready. Yeah, to go. no, I mean, you, you mentioned Protestants. I think you're yeah. absolutely right. I, I think that we actually have a lot of crossover ground with Roman Catholics. Oh, on this point, yeah, absolutely. On these points, and, and a lot of the things we'll talk about in just a little bit, including subsidiarity. Yeah. They've actually done a lot to further. And, and so the points that are good, we take them and absolutely. unashamedly say yes and amen. And um, we've, we've been benefited by Catholic thinkers, Anthony Esselin. Yeah, he talks about uh, subsidiarity as an area of political theology that has been highly developed by Roman Catholic Correct. theologians, and it has. Yeah. So when we talk about this, is even I think we have listeners who are probably unfamiliar with how to thread the needle on these things. Uh, they know that we're we're Reformed and Protestant, Presbyterian, but it's like, okay, how do we think about this? Well, the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura affirms that the scriptures are the only infallible rule of, of authority for life and doctrine. It doesn't say that tradition or that Church. those things that have spoken are not an authority at all. They're just not an infallible authority. So we judge their rulings against the light of Scripture, but, but we think, don't dishonor our father and mother and, and just throw them out. Yeah, and that's been one of, I think, one of the errors is that we tend to look at Catholicism and you can want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Or just say that, like, everything that they did was bad, we're going to do the opposite, whatever it was. Yeah. A lot of things they did were... Fine and good. And one of the things, too, is um, church authority. Yeah. I think one of the things we definitely are missing in Protestantism, and you see this with the SBC, you yeah. see it with the PCA. Um, I see it with pastors who are struggling in churches and church discipline between them and their elders. They don't know what to do. And it's like, this is why you need a broader church. Yeah, We, we shouldn't all just be dislocated individuals. And so I would even say on issues like this, the reason we're trying to bring people together on these core doctrines is because we're hoping for the day when the church is one. Yes. We will all be one again. Yeah, that's exactly right. So when we come into this next point, we're now starting to talk about some of the overlap and relationship between this body politic or between this the, the civil magistrate, the state, political authority that God has established, and he's given certain duties to that political authority. And he's given the church, and the church has certain duties but there is this question where there's some overlap. There's going to be some overlap, and there are going to be some areas since the church is made up of individuals, family authorities made up of individuals, this nation's made up of people with churches in it and all sorts of questions. So it's like how should the state relate to the sphere of the church? And and, and we're saying in, in the ninth thesis that godly city fathers, that godly political authority is to actually be nursing father. It's to be a defender of the Christian cultus, that essentially it is supposed to establish a state of affairs of cooperation with the Christian religion in a, a, a deliberate sort of choice to support and help maintain the Christian religion. Yeah, and you can even see this in places like Nehemiah, Ezra, mm -hmm. um, where the king has sent the people, uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, and other people as well, to go rebuild uh, the temple to restore worship, cultists, et yeah. cetera. 
And, and let me read from Calvin here because I think I think people hear that and they're like, this is where it starts to sound really foreign, right? Where people are like, what about the separation of church and state? What about like, how, how do we think about that? What about religious freedom? Well, John Calvin in the Institutes wrote that civil government prevents idolatry, sacrilege against God's name, blasphemies against his truth and other public offenses against religion against uh, religious religion from arising and spreading amongst the people it prevents the public peace from being disturbed it provides that each man may keep his property safe and sound that men may carry on blameless intercourse among themselves that honesty and modesty be preserved among men in short he says it provides that a public manifestation of religion may exist among Christians and that humanity may be maintained among men the law of God forbids killing, but that murderers may not go unpunished. The lawgiver himself puts into the hand of the ministers a sword to be drawn against all murderers. So, so you see where Calvin is essentially in that list in a way that would probably make 99% of modern Christians highly uncomfortable. He you just know, mingles together like what we would consider normal political duties with like, oh yeah, and preventing blasphemies. Well, the thing is, with the previous theses that we've gone through, we've established that the civil magistrate should be uh, informed by the law of God, and they should in- enforce it as mm-hmm. a deacon of the Lord, amongst all the other things that we've said in previous mm-hmm. episodes that I'm not recalling off the top of my head. But essentially, the, you see that the the state is going to function this way anyway, right? Mm-hmm. The state functions this way anyway. Look out in front of most city halls in America— in the month of June. And I wouldn't be surprised if most of them have some sort of gay flag waving out in front of city hall. Well, yeah, Dan, and something you, you talk about a lot in this show and elsewhere, but every culture has blasphemy laws. The, the reason that we have, you know, I think it was Iowa a few years back, somebody burned a gay flag on a church and they got like 25 years in prison or something crazy for hate Hate speech. Yeah. Yeah. Hate speech. Uh, So, you know, that hate speech, hate crime is really, uh, it it is this category of blasphemy law. So even when we think we're escaping it through secularism, we're really not. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that's what you're driving. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Even today I had read an article. It was called uh, rainbow washing. I believe is what it was called. Yeah. And it was essentially a group uh, in the LGBTQ whatever community that was uh, taking issue and lobbying uh, for the fact that a lot of companies use the rainbow flag to for their brand, to perpetuate their brand for image and things like that, but they actually don't have any metrics to measure how many homosexuals and transgender folks that they're hiring and that they aren't donating money to those causes, so they should not be allowed mm-hmm. to yeah. use the rainbow flag in their marketing. When and you so, said folks, I, I'm assuming you are, that's the word spelled F O L X, right? I'm sorry? Transgender <laughs> folks. Why are you gay? Are you assuming? I'm, I'm, I just want to make sure, because otherwise, I, I didn't. Latinx? Yeah, I'm just making sure that you're speaking in a, a way that's. Um, nuanced properly you are gay well and following our blasphemy laws. i can barely speak english much less nuanced english so <laughs> nuanced woke woke yeah. speak so i mean the point is that there are our priests in our society they're yep. lobbying the government to enforce their blasphemy laws that's what i'm saying yeah and i would i would actually argue even further dan uh, and i think what you're saying is absolutely true so look at the 10 commandments every single thing in our culture lgbt wokeness whatever 
has an equivalent of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, absolutely. So the Fifth Commandment, I, I saw this uh, on Twitter the other day. This is from a classroom uh, that somebody took at a public school. It's a, pic- it's a picture on a door, and it's a polar bear and a couple smaller polar bears, and they're all rainbow-colored polar bears. And it said, Jeez. if your parents aren't accepting of your identity, I'm your mom now. Pre, like pre-K, pre-mom hugs. Unbelievable. Christendom Bible College offers a one-year certificate in the humanities for students who intend to pursue a degree or for students who prefer to begin their chosen occupations upon completion of our program. Older students who never attended college or who went to a college where the humanities were less robust will also find our program stimulating and suitable. Located steps from the Ohio River in the town of New Richmond, we're unaccredited in order to remain free to teach as our biblically-minded consciences demand. As servants of Christ, we won't wear the yoke of the woke. Instead, we stand on the shoulders of Christianity's giants, not to stew in nostalgia, but to see through the culture wars fall to the glorious days of a Christendom still to be built. Our exceptional faculty are committed to the historic, biblical foundations of our faith. Come be a part of Christendom Bible College. Visit us on the web at christendombiblecollege.org to learn more. While there, be sure to sign up for our email updates and receive your free three-chapter excerpt of our very own Dr. Frank J. Smith's new book, Race, Church, and Society. So think about this. Even in, in that religion, the leftist LGBT religion, they're claiming something about the fifth commandment in terms of how worship should impact parenting even. Right? So like, yeah. the, the point is you can't escape religion. No, no. And so the choice is, it, we keep coming back to this and everything that we're doing is, it's not uh, whether but which. Exactly. Right? You're going, the state is going to support some religion. The question is which one. It, it, and, and that is the key point to understand. When you start getting into this area where people are uncomfortable with the idea of the, the state serving as a nursing father to the church and establishing and promoting the Christian religion in some way. And what we don't mean by that necessarily is that the church is, or that the state ought to established some hyper-specific denomination. Now, there's, a, there's a spectrum of ideas, and there's a whole debate under this. You could read, there's a bunch of good stuff on purelypresbyterian.com on the Establishment Principle National covenant, Covenanting, and they, they go into all sorts of resources that you can really get granular on this stuff. But what we should all understand is that it is a not whether but which, where th- this is just a feature of authority, is that you are going to promote some standard of good and and wrong of blasphemy law. I mean, for example, for example, there's a systematic theology written by John Brown of Haddington. And he said this, he said, as heads of families ought to promote sound principles and holy practices in their families, magistrates ought to promote and establish the reformation of doctrine, worship, discipline, and the government and government of the church in their dominions as a means of promoting their happiness. And for this end, may call synods of church offices for officers for settling and governing her affairs according to the word of God, like in the cold open that Dan was describing at the beginning of this episode with Constantine and Arius and the Nicene Creed, and where we got that, we see this was mainstream in uh, Reformed doctrine. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 23, especially paragraphs 
three and four, it talks about the civil magistrate. It's not allowed to assume to itself the administration of the word or sacraments, the things that are given to the church, but it says the civil magistrate has authority and it is his duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies are suppressed, all corruption and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed. For the better effecting whereof, he hath the power to call synods and to be present at them and provide that whatsoever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God. Could you, could you imagine Chad Joe Biden, King. Joe Biden saying, hey, church, everybody, denominations, Protestant denominations, yeah. you guys need to get together and figure out this lady pastors thing. And the, yeah. I'm going to sit and I'm going to watch, but you have to come to Washington Yep, and and figure this out. Yeah, we're going to call the heads of the. We're going to call a synod. We're going to figure out this eternal functional subordination question. We're going to figure out this lady pastor thing. I want I want you guys to come together here six months, clear your schedule, and 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 the thing is, how far have? But uh, uh, back to the point before I move on. Back to the point. I I, I really like this subject. So there's a lot of thoughts in my head, but that is inescapable. That is inescapable. Authorities that are authorities ordained by God, fathers, pastors, civil magistrates. Like you've been saying, Eric and Dan, you can't get away from the establishment or promotion of some moral vision, which is in, in inescapably religious. You, you just can't get away from that. So yeah, you so, see that with Roe yeah, exposed right exactly. now. Yeah, I mean... And I think that's one reason why the, the really this sexuality cult, a lot of false religion idolatry throughout the ages has had some connected sex cult. Yeah. Um, and that's really what we're seeing with LGBT. And and also just look at the way that people approach it, mm-hmm. right? It's not, in the 90s, they kind of feigned this with like, you know, don't ask, don't tell, uh, was a military principle, meaning you can practice homosexuality, just don't talk about it. And so that really was you know, coming in the side door, I think. Yeah. And they said, no, 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 no. You know, we just want to do our thing. You do your thing. And then once it kind of became acceptable, you had the will and grace culture. But, but where we are now is no, like it's in the curriculum. You will be taught this. If you don't believe this, we will take your kids. Um, and, and definitely worse. It's not even enough to just accept it. You have to celebrate celebrate it. it. Yeah. You have to be glad about it. You have to worship it. Yeah, that's right. You have to pinch your pinch of of incense. Yeah, and so that's where we're at, but but I think it's it's more out in the open that you can see this yeah. is being approached with religious fervor because it's a religion. Yes. And and really what obviously again, I have claimed that we're going to make it through. So we're going to we're going to keep moving to number 10 here in a moment, but to to sum up what we just said, what what we're saying is that the the civil magistrate, this a godly city father would seek to establish a state of affairs where in his realm the Christian faith was privileged, where he was saying, without reservation, this is a Christian people. We worship the, the true and living God, where they say our laws are going to be based on uh, the unchanging character of God. So our positive and our negative moral laws are going to be based on the equity of God's law. We're going to say, here's the principle of the Ten Commandments. Here's the principle of this law. So we're going to then in different, the courts are going to handle case law and they're going to argue from that, but it's going to be founded on that. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of this nation. And then, but they're going to avoid making a few errors that would be contrary to the nature of the Christian faith. One, 
They are never going to demand conversion at sword point of the lost. It's impossible. You can't do that, right? They're never going to establish sort of like converter dies, not Islam. Islam doesn't have, in fact, the doctrines of, you know, like religious toleration where we would love our neighbor who don't worship the true and living God are the results. This may be for another episode, but they're the results of the Christian faith and only flourish where Christianity has gone. They're going to avoid on the one hand what we, we could call Erastianism, which is the error of essentially promoting the um, the church as being uh, over the state, essentially. Uh, or I'm sorry, the opposite of making the state over the church. There's Erastianism and ecclesiocracy. Erastianism essentially saying that, you know, the 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 state is over the church and can do what the Westminster forbade. Where yeah, this tip, is tip, like Henry VIII, right? Yeah, where they're saying like you must do this, you must the, do that. The Pope's not the head of the church. Yeah. I am. Yeah, divine authority yes. given to emperors, kings, whatever, yes. as the head of the church. Even the Queen of England yeah. right now over the Anglican Church. Erastian. So we're acknowledging yeah. that there's a clear separation. Yes, there are. They're different duties, different spheres. And then on the other side, the popish kind of ecclesiocracy, where the Pope is claiming that he has overlordship over all of the magistrates in their duties. And what we're saying instead of that is that the church and the nation and its city fathers are both under the headship of Christ as king, and they both have their duties that are separate and different duties. They have overlap, but they're fundamentally different duties, and they should cooperate in these in establishing essentially a nurturing, like a, like a you know, the 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 pools, the shallow pools where fish will go or sharks will go to lay their babies and the, so the babies can grow up to full maturity. We're saying that the nation should be a nursery in that sense that is favorable to Christianity being established without conversion at the sword, without Erastianism, without ecclesiocracy. They each understand their lanes and they're each operating within it. So do you think, um, say, you know, in this type of view, say America was more closely aligned with what mm-hmm. you're talking about? If the government said, hey, we're going to make it peaceable to be Christian here, we are not going to make it peaceable to be a Mormon, to be Islamic, to be Jewish. It's a big topic. The only thing I talk about is the Jews. Do you think that would be problematic? Oh, boy. It's like, 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 and and the reason I'm asking is because, like, Russell Moore, when he was at the ERLC, yeah, like they were sending money to help build mosques. Right. Like the David French, like this is a yeah. blessing of liberty type type nonsense. How would you address that question? Yeah, that it, it, this is like a question where you can either like say an episode worth of stuff or, and I'm not going to do that. So <laughs> I would say that it is fundamentally contrary to our doctrine of conversion. Like I said, like one of the one of the guardrails that's very obvious is that it's contrary to our doctrine of conversion that that the state could force conversion on somebody, right? However, it's also not the case that you could have a more where you could have essentially a, a courts with laws enforcing civil penalties without reference to some ultimate standard for good that's going to be the measure of those laws at all times. Well, and that's why I asked because like, so one year I read the Quran, right? Yeah. It says, you know, if your wife, you know, is disobedient, the first time take her in the bedroom and strike her with an open hand. Mm-hmm. If she does it again, strike her with a closed hand. Like as a, as a quote unquote Christian nation, we would not be 
I'm, I'm, this is my, my argument. We would not be required to promote Muslim laws mm-hmm. like that. We would say, actually, that's abuse. Yeah. You're not allowed to do that. You cannot strike your wife with a closed fist when you don't like the way she cooked the beans. Correct. And I, I think one of the ways that this would play out, I'm theorizing now, is into our next point about localism. Yeah. So if we have a Christian nation and there is a petition to build a mosque, they should have a very difficult time finding a place where they're like, yeah, we'll give you building permits to build a mosque so you can worship Allah in our town. We'll send you, we'll sell you this land. Some of you, was talk, one of you was talking about that before, right? Where if like a church existed of another like faith, synagogue, something like that, like where you didn't have to promote its upkeep, but um, you didn't necessarily like close it down. Yeah, that's actually a Muslim law that they would say that people of the book, so Jews or Christians, are allowed to worship in their land. Interesting. In very limited ways. They're not allowed to evangelize publicly. They're not allowed to it's, – it's actually a capital crime to convert from Islam to Christianity to another faith. Uh, and then you can keep like you can keep worshiping in a lot of places in the church, but you're not allowed to upkeep it. So essentially, over time, it's supposed to fall into disrepair, and the Muslims are supposed to win. I don't think that I'm ready to go to all of the levels of detail of saying like, here's exactly how we would thread the needle on all of all of these down the road questions. And I think that these sorts of things again are like an episode or nothing kind of questions. I would I would see a state of affairs where so you would winsome. have I know I know I like it. I just don't want to say something stupid, you know, and then end up being like, oh, wow, 2022 Brian was really uh, wrong there," uh, which is going to happen anyway. But I mean, I think that you could see essentially a place where the nation says, "This is a Christian nation. We've we've adopted certain statements into our founding documents, like the Apostles' Creed." the explicit awareness of the Lordship of Christ, statement on the the measuring of our laws against the moral principles of the scriptures, things like that, explicitly in our case. And basically, this is English case law. This is the foundations of American judicial polity come from this kind of, uh, this exact kind of process. And then when when it comes to uh, other faiths worshiping and things like that in the land, again, all of it needs to be done in accordance with the principle that you can't convert on the basis of the sword, but we are, what I think we should be able to agree on is that we're attempting to make a place that is a nursery for Christianity, not a nursery for secularism and not a nursery for Mormonism and not a nursery for Islam. And so you're not saying a, it should be hostile and unfriendly for those no, folks? No, actually not necessarily. I think that part of, I think what, what they should find is an extraordinarily hospitable people and that we should be the kind of people who because we're Christians, we love our enemies. We actually do. Like, we love our enemies. Now, can our enemies come in and celebrate sodomy publicly? No. Can our enemies come in and attempt to convert our children? Can they commit public blasphemy against the living God? And to that, I would answer, absolutely not. Absolutely not. They're not allowed to do that. And the fact that that would be controversial today just shows how far we've come. Basically, in the counter-discipleship of the secularist gods— that we think that that's crazy, right? Yeah. So in terms of like, are, are the Mormons allowed to repair their church or not? I, you know, I'm, I'm not ready to, to say that the Mormons aren't allowed to reshingle their roof after the windstorm. I am ready to say that the Mormons are not allowed to say, well, uh, in the courts, though, the Doctrine and Covenants say this. We'd say the Doctrine and the Covenants. We don't you, acknowledge you, these. Are you talking about <laughs> Joseph Smith? You know, he was a morally repugnant 
false prophet. So, you know, I'm sorry, but we're going to laugh that out of the court kind of situation. Yeah. So uh, the the next principle, the next thesis. <laughs> I tried to get you. I know you, you did. just I know you did. nailed it. I just, I just came right around it. Uh, godly city fathers are to uphold the principles of localism and subsidiarity. And I just want to point out that even a thesis like this assumes that the Christian faith is true and is the standard for doctrine because these are Christian principles. The, the, uh, the, 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 the principles of secularism would be like federalism and the, whatever the opposite of subsidiarity is. Yeah, it would be the large central government. Yeah, so, so Eric, what, what are we talking about when we talk about localism and subsidiarity? Well, I am so glad that you provided a definition on this handout. Oh, you were just supposed to say it as if it was off the top of your head. Oh, and this is going to be, be like, off the top of my head. Wow, Eric is so put together. <laughs> That's right. So subsidiarity is a principle of social organization that holds that social and political issues should be dealt with at the most immediate level that is consistent with their resolution. The Oxford English Dictionary defines subsidiarity as, quote, the principle that a central authority should have a subsidiary function performing only those tasks which cannot be performed at a more local level, end quote. So basically what we're saying is the smallest local, most local entity that can take care of issues should. So that would be, you know, uh, family. Um, We would even have... I think subsidiarity, they've actually, in Catholic teaching, they've actually pointed to things like healthcare, yeah, charity, absolutely. as falling under, actually, believe it or not, under the oikos despot, under the, the woman. That's right. Uh, healthcare was something to be taken care of in the home, primarily. Yep. Not that you couldn't seek doctors, but that it was a, a mom. It was her responsibility to seek the welfare and healthcare of her children. Mm. Uh, today, we have the opposite. We have yeah. a, a, a globo state, which tries to do it. And so when we have you know, medicines or vaccines that are passed out, it's one size fits all, which is absurd because one size, you know, different states, different communities are so very different. Yeah. Um, Subsidiarity is saying, no, let's let the local take care of local things. Yeah. And really what you would have in in a country, ours used to be this way, but that was relying on a principle of subsidiarity was um, the, the federal government would essentially be involved in not that much locally. Very little. They're not involved with schooling. Yeah. They're not involved with curriculums. Even when I was a kid in a public school, my mom was on the steering committee. And my mom and like six other teachers in Denver uh, had pretty much full say on what the curriculum was going to be. That's right. Um, that is not the case 20 years later. The, Absolutely The not. federal government is dictating almost everything that is happening curriculum-wise. Esalen, in Out of the Ashes, he even has a section where he's talking about subsidiarity and localism. And he points out that in the year 1920, so this was not that long ago, really in the scheme of things, not that long ago. In the U.S. in 1920, there were 21 times as many school boards per thousand students as there are when he wrote the book, which was very recently, which means 21 times as many people were involved in the running of local schools in 1920 than they are today. And so he, uh, this quote is so, so good from him, this, this paragraph or two. He says, quote, My point is not simply that the farther away you are from the school or the bridge or the bakery or the bandstand or the chambers of the justice of the peace, the likelier it is that your work will be expensive or otios or impractical. It's not, simply put, to put it this way, that a neighborhood is best organized by neighbors and not by emissaries from Washington, the Kremlin, Brussels, or the United Nations. It is that when you take from people their authority, you rob them 
as the Greeks saw, of something essential to their humanity. It's not that everything has been politicized. Everything has been stolen from the polis and given over to Jabba the state. Bloated, disgusting, corrupt, without conscience, accountable to no one, and voiding the resultants of his meals into the lands and the drinking water and the air that everyone has to breathe. We want our authority returned to us, or we intend to take it up again, because it is ours by right. We want not to be reduced to idiots and barbarians with a nominal and trivial vote. I'm like, when I read that paragraph, I was like, I will never say it as good as Anthony Esselin just wrote that that paragraph. Oh, that's magnificent. And this is actually, by the way, a nice tie into what we were talking about in cuckold conservatism, kind of where you, because of subsidiarity, a lack of it, this is why all that we're really left to do is like kind of think about a national election once every four years. But we have no consequential vote in what happens yeah. in almost any area. Yeah. And this is a biblical principle. I mean, you see this established when Paul is talking about the man who doesn't provide for his household is denied the faith. He's worse. Or the, the man who doesn't provide for the needs of his family, especially for those of his own household, has denied the faith and is mm. worse than an unbeliever. And then when you see the church being instructed again by Paul to, to think about how to support widows— He's basically saying he starts with the lowest. Yeah, rung. let's make sure is there family that can take care of them? Is there? And then he moves out to the church. And what we have is this assumption where it's like, oh, there's a problem. Call the federal government. The federal government will take care of it. They'll take care of your unemployment. They'll take care of your disability. They'll take care of whatever you need. Your health care, because of course they can do it best. It's this inverted. Well, I remember subsidiarity. Yeah, Doug Wilson saying this um, in times of crisis you'll always find out what Americans really worship by who they cry out to. Yeah. And so he said, in times of crisis, we always cry out for the, the government, the federal government, to do more. What is the government doing about school shootings? Rather yeah. than saying, what are we in our local community as fathers, what are we doing about our children? Like, what kind of families produce children yeah. that walk into a school and open fire? Yeah. But we don't even say that. And let alone, as Doug said, you know, we should be crying out to God, pleading for his mercy and then taking responsibility at the most local level possible. But yeah. we, we don't even think that way anymore. Yeah, I know. You're right, Eric. Truer words have never been spoken. Well, I'm sure they have been. <laughs> I really have nothing to offer to this conversation other than recently in the state of Utah. So when Roe was overturned, there was a trigger law, mm -hmm. right? So as soon as Roe was overturned, which shouldn't have, they shouldn't have had a trigger law. They should have just they should ignored have the, the Supreme Court. Yeah. Since they don't legislate, they just offer opinions. But there was a trigger law. And at a lower court, third district court, Planned Parenthood lobbied that the trigger law should be suspended. And so you can mm -hmm. kind of see this at a small, at the lowest level court, this trigger petition law was made. Trigger law shut down abortions? Trigger law had shut down abortions. It had shut down. Yep, okay. it had. And, and so Planned Parenthood was asking for a stay, like for a suspension so that they could sue the state. Anyway, but it's a lower level court. The judge said, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll stop the trigger law. We'll stop the trigger law. And one of the reasons he gave is that it doesn't matter anyway because it's going to be pushed up to higher courts. Oh, really? Because there's... <sighs> Mr. Should I call you Mr.? Why are you gay? And so yep. I think what you see, uh, it, this goes along with uh, the downfall of masculinity the uh, lack of courage that men have uh, in order to stand up in the face of oppression. Mm -hmm. 
and this idea of like a huge centralized entity and not subsidiarity, not taking responsibility. You see men like this that are essentially just cowards that just try to get out of the way. Yeah. Well, and they push been, it up the chain. They've been trained because they live in a, a bureaucracy. Yeah. They live in a centralized job of the state environment. So I, th- I think the thing is like in 1900, you had men working on farms, fathers training sons, ministers training those who went to college. Yeah. In everything we've been talking about in these 12 points. Okay. So in that era, like you had daily habitual training on how to be a man, how to be courageous, how to take responsibility. Now, like cradle to grave, people are trained in how to do whatever the guy above you says, no matter what, don't think about it, just do it. You won't get in trouble for pushing it up the chain. You might get in trouble for making a concrete decision. You might get in trouble for actually taking responsibility for something. Maybe you'll do it wrong. So instead, we've been trained by the vast bloated bureaucracy to push responsibility up the chain. And that's why you have managers in almost in everything from government to business whose whole job is just to make all of the decisions that people three steps down the chain should already have taken care of. Well, and this is actually the problem in the church the last two years is m- most of the pastors and churches in America and Canada are not leaders. They're managerial elite. Yeah. And so they're in that same mindset. Well, the government said it. all we do is regurgitate and follow what was handed down. You know, you see this a lot, especially since 2020 with the expert fallacy has been exposed. Yeah. yeah. You know, just deferring to experts to do your thinking. Well, what science says, the experts say, yeah. doctors say, um, the government says, you really can't love your neighbor the way that the do- government says, or the doctors say, mm-hmm. or the scientists say. Yeah. Subsidiarity is saying, we can't do that. No. You as a father, you're going to have to make. And this is what was so absurd. Like you as a father are going to have to make decisions for the health of your yeah, family. You make the call. And that's why it's so arrogant for a judge to do what the judge did in Utah. Because even though the law in Utah, the trigger law is imperfect, it had stupid exceptions for rape as if we should murder children for the sins of their father and all kinds of stupid exceptions. But it still outlawed 99% of abortions in Utah. That was the people of Utah had spoken through their elected legislators. The people had said, this is what we want in Utah. And the judge said, you're not allowed to do that. We need a higher authority to tell you. Well, and in fact, that was the whole case with abortion. I think you had 30-something states who had outlawed abortion. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so actually, and same with gay marriage, gay mirage, um, those things were outlawed. They were outlawed And by then states. the Supreme Court said, no, 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 no. Yeah. We know better than and, you. And that's why we're, we're, we're supposed to be a republic. We're supposed to be these United States, not the United States. With some arbitrary borders that basically mean nothing except you get your own flag and you can decide that the, the California gull is for some inexplicable reason the Utah state bird. Like you, That's the only thing you're allowed to do, though. You can pick your bird and your flag. But you have no sovereignty. Other than that, though, you can't do a thing different from California. And subsidiarity, which is a, a principle that is not only essential, but it was flipping kindergarten obvious to, to the founders of the U.S., even the non-Christian ones. It's like, this is such an obvious principle that you have to be the kind of stupid that takes a PhD in political uh, theory to to arrive at, which is like this idea that really what we should establish is where we have like three people who are in charge of literally everything in the United States. This is why presidential elections have become such a thing, because every, like we need a king. We need our king who's going to rule by fiat. Well, well it, so no. imagine imagine the frustrations of people that live in states like Illinois 
or California uh-huh. or Washington or Oregon or other places that have a vast, vast parts of the state are conservative. They're Christian. Yeah. And they're controlled by one central entity Chicago. in the city. Yeah, Chicago. Yep. You know, that's yeah. anyway. And, and and all of this is like where this really meets the road is that when you have the 11th, this is a super smooth transition I'm about to do. When you have a, a, a people who are actually living out our 11th thesis that Christians should live truly political lives as the Greeks defined it, which is a life enmeshed in the affairs of the polis in a way that contributes to the good of his neighbor, not lives of barbarism. When you have a people who are living truly political lives, which are lives lived for the good of their neighbor and the neighbors that they know, not this faceless global neighbor, they have no idea who it is, but the people who are actually near them and in their sphere of influence. When you have people living political lives like that, and then someone comes in from outside and they steal away your authority, they steal away your authority. Well, you know what that is? That That's violence. Mm. Like they're doing violence to your lives and they're actually undermining your, your, your point. And here's the thing, boys. I know that I said we're going to get through all of them because we are. Number 12, the 12th thesis about the, the fathers knowing their sphere of authority and what's not in it. We've talked about that quite a bit already through this. So I want to land the plane here and get your last thoughts here. When we say political lives that aren't lives of barbarism, what are we talking about there? And, and, and why is this what it looks like to live out this principle of subsidiarity for men and fathers and mothers to take responsibility for their communities, their churches, their families, their lives? What does this look like, and why are we contrasting it with barbarism? Yeah, man, what a great question. Well, I think it goes back to something that we've talked about uh, in the episodes, uh, Carl Truman's book, uh, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Part of the problem is that we even have this conception of self apart from household or, you know, godliness and piety apart from a household. Mm. For you to think in a polis way, you have to be so connected to your local people in place, meaning not only that you have like this cute, like hipster interest in their lives um, every Saturday morning at the, you know, the farmer's market. Yeah. But it means that you actually have a real need for each other. Yes. Like you have real dependences intergenerational local dependences on one another. If, if, if Dan doesn't provide the milk, our family doesn't have milk. Yeah. If, if Kevin doesn't show up and fix my plumbing, it won't get fixed. Uh, we have real dependence on one another in the local church community as well. And so as we, as we start to have that, then we're engaged locally. This is taking subsidiarity and then driving it and walking it out in a daily basis. Yeah. And and here's actually the crazy thing I think about, you know, you hear all the cuckold conservatives, you know, complaining and crying and all the spilt milk over the global government. The global government starts to fall apart the moment you take responsibility for your own existence. Because we actually, here's, here's what's crazy. People are like, well, the state, the state educates my kids and there's nothing I can do. And I just throw the BS flag. That's absolute cop-out. There are things that you can do. You can start educating your children locally. You can start taking responsibility for your children. Homeschool them. Go to Ogden, Utah. Put them in St. Brennan's Academy. We will help you educate your children in a way that is Christ-honoring. But I think that's what it means is we've got to take responsibility at the local levels. Our church took responsibility with schooling. Um, You can do that. You can, you know— as bad as things were during the, the you know, shamdemic, well, there's a lot of people who are not vaccinated. 
right? There's a lot of people who said, yeah, I'm not doing that. You know, we, we refuse to play this game. Well, if you had a country of people doing that at a, at a million local levels across the United States, yes, gl- global homo dies. You know, I had this crazy idea that I pitched to a gentleman that's involved, a member of our church. He's involved in politics in the state of Utah, especially at the county level. And I said to this man, I, I said, you know what would be a radical idea is you should propose abolishing property taxes in Weber County. Absolutely. Should. You should abolish. And and let me tell you why. And I think this is a good example. It's a, it, it is a crazy example in our time of loving your neighbor because I want to be able to have the, the Bundersons next door to where I live actually own their property. Yeah, that's right. They're not just renting from the state. Yeah. I want them to be able to stay there. I want the Sauvé family to have their house and to actually be able to own it. And not and have not to be re- plundered. buy it every generation. Yeah, just pay right. their rent. Through taxes. Exactly. exactly. And as inflation goes up, our taxes are going up and more money is stolen from us. But you want to talk about love of neighbor? I mean, I think that's a really good picture. Abolish property tax. Just abolishing property taxes. You actually own your property. You don't lose it through taxation from the government in a couple of generations. They can't take it from you. They yeah. can't take it from you. It is yours. You are rooted in a place, and they're not stealing from you anymore, rent money or taxes. Can you imagine what taxes. would happen, though? Like, we talk about burning the boats and staying in a place, yeah. investing locally. Can you imagine what would happen— if you didn't have property tax, just in one county in America, it would be. Do you know what would happen to people most, wanting to own land here? Our yeah, property it would be values the most would valuable up, county yeah. in the U.S. Our property because tax even, would go. The, our values would go up twenty percent overnight. Even if a, a standard home costs eight hundred thousand dollars in that world where there's no property tax, yeah. you would still have people investing in it because they say, "Yeah, but once I pay this off, I own it. I own it outright forever." And, it's actually a way that inflation, it, it, property taxes, are a way. To continue to enslave people, uh, and not and and not be able to avoid the shackle of inflation. That's right. Sorry, that was just it. Just come, came to mind because inflation is a tax that gets it. The expense of it goes up over time, so your property value goes up with inflation because it doesn't go as far either. And so your so taxes the, go up. Correct. Yeah, everything ends up getting more expensive. So Even the amount of, of taxes that they're pulling pulling from you, that yeah. they're stealing from you, uh, doesn't go as far, so they need to continue to raise taxes or to inflate money, which is just another tax. Same tax. But, but anyway, the point is, if it, thinking locally like that, that yeah. would just be a, a, a radical example. And there are many, many. I, I love yeah. the community example that Eric gave about just depending on one another. And you only get that if you're rooted in a place. Well, and I think cultivating the mindset, um, so you can check out a Hard Men podcast episode that I did on Aeneas, Mm-hmm. Uh, Pietas, Gravitas, and Octoritas yeah. talks a lot about this and the polis. But really, when you think about wanting to win glory and win distinction for your people, like your local people, your people, when yeah. you, we think about the work that we do, whether it's pastoring, whether it's business, whatever it is, we want to bring glory to our people. Yeah, we want to serve them. But we have this. I mean, Brian brought this up, and I, I know I've mentioned this before, but in, in the Lord's Prayer, it's our. It's not my. That's right. And so when, when I pray, Lord, give us our daily bread, Yeah. every time I pray that, I should be thinking about the men in the church who need work. Yes. I should be thinking about the single mothers. I should be thinking about 
the people who are going through a tough work experience. Yeah. I should be praying for us. Yes. And if we become so rooted in that us, in our people, in a brotherhood, in a gang, yeah. then I, I think, yeah, you're going to have a very different, over time, uh, perspective about the polis yeah. versus, yeah, there's just this some giant state. I don't really know them. They don't know yeah. me, and they take all my money. And, and your goal is, our goal as Christians should be to establish n- cities and towns and even if it's just house, free markets first households i mean let's start there households and then churches and then towns and then cities and then counties and then maybe lord willing someday states and then maybe someday lord willing a nation that would say we're going to be the kind of people who actually try to give the response the power the authority to the people who have taken the responsibility so that the people who are living truly political lives who have a vested ownership interest in a people, they are the ones who are shaping the polis. They're the ones who are shaping the political life of that community. So th- this is a reason why people make fun of this. But in earlier, before we got secular modernism, it was things like landed people who were allowed to vote, people who own land, people who had a vested interest. And there are ways in which that has been uh perverted in oppressive ways. Absolutely. People have sinned. People are going to continue to sin. But the principle there is this principle of a truly political life, that people who actually have their lives enmeshed in the lives of their neighbors in a way that's contributing to the society, they're the ones who have taken responsibility. And so authority will flow to them. Hmm. Aslan talks about this in an essay he did. Uh, He said, quote, we're overwhelmed with what is foul or vicious or false or stupid. And his solution, I love this, it's not that we should then petition the government to do something different. He says, quote, we must raise up people who want great things and who love good literature and art. This task must begin in our homes, our parishes, and our schools. So his solution is the principle of subsidiarity. It's the principle of localism. It's the principle of Christians taking responsibility in their selves, households, churches, so that eventually we could get to a place where in our communities, we're actually seeing people live not the lives of the barbarian, which came from, in the Roman world, the peoples outside the Roman Empire who spoke bar, 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 bar. Their language sounded like that to the Romans who spoke Latin. So they called them barbarians because they just said bar, bar, barbarians. Like babble. Yeah, exactly. They were saying, you you basically unwashed backwoods babblers. That was what they were saying to the to like the Germanic pagans and that sort of thing. So our goal, <laughs> when we say barbarians, we're not necessarily wholesale adopting that. What we're saying is, like, there are people, though, who aren't cultured. They aren't self-controlled. They're not Christian. They don't know their right hand from their left hand. Uh, and we don't want societies that are ruled like that by animalian appetites. We want societies that are ruled by people who are truly political. Mm. They have a vested, bought-in, costly uh, stake in the community. And it's when you get that, when people actually do band together and they say no to the judge at the state level that's trying to take their authority from them. And they just say, what did you say? Never mind, we don't care. And they just keep going about their business. And they say, oh, you're going to try to, Planned Parenthood's trying to open an abortion clinic in our town? No, no, they're actually not. We are not going to let them do that. You won't find anybody to do the work. You won't be able to buy the land. Nobody will sell. Yes. If you try to sneak it in, we'll make sure that it doesn't open. Yeah. And by the way, if you try to operate, it is illegal and we'll punish to the full extent of the law. And if you have the capital in a place where you've actually done the work over generations 
and you own that township and they try to bring it in and, and quote some federal laws at you, that's the point where you can actually say, no, you don't understand. If you try to open this business in our township, the men of this town will be at the front door barring the way and you will not get in. It, it won't happen. And that's what happens when men take responsibility and women take responsibility for their own local people, their own local place, and they say, as for me and my house, as for me and my place, we'll serve the Lord. So in closing, I just want to anticipate an objection to this sure. project that we did. What about the people that say, oh, you just have this utopian ideal. Mm-hmm. You're just trying to force heaven onto earth. What, what, what would you say to those people? Yeah, my first response is actually that every religion and Marxist, progressive, secular humanist is certainly a religion. Every religion has sort of a picture of heaven or utopia. So I think the question is, what is the picture of utopia or heaven? And how do we go about getting there? And I would say as Christians, well, we follow the law of God in faith. Mm-hmm. And we also have a realistic expectation, right? Post-mill guys are always charged, especially with, oh, you know, you believe next year it's going to be heaven on earth. No, we don't. No. We are not an over-realized eschatology. No. Uh, we know there's going to be uh, many points that are dark in in human history. Yep. And so we're prepared for that. But I think what we are saying is, it, it, this is, again, a, a which-weather question. Everybody has a view of what they think the ideal society should look like. Yeah. The secular humanists are trying to get there through, you know, the green energy and bug meat and killing all your babies. And really, they're, and they're even trying to get there at uh, the, the point of the sword of the big government. Yes. Of machine guns and tanks and yes. predator drones and the surveillance state. And now using, you know, the corporate to control people. They're advancing you know, their religion at the point of the bullet. Yeah, and, and I would even say some of that has shifted, right? Where yeah. it's like at the point of not not so much a bullet anymore, but of corporate America, your livelihood, which may actually be more lethal. Like yeah. we're just gonna take away your livelihood. Dan, Same, if you don't yeah. if you don't think the group think like us, then we're gonna take your job away. Is it gonna be is it gonna be execution at eleven hundred feet per second or over seventy <laughs> years? That's the That's question. That's right. But it's still execution. It's still execution. So I, I think fundamentally there's always a view of utopia. It's sort of like yeah. Francis Schaeffer always did this. He said, every religion has a view of creation, fall, redemption. Yeah. The, the question is, what is it and what does it look yeah, like? And, and as Christians, what we're saying is that all of this stuff is bottom-up, grassroots, mm-hmm. leaven. And yes, the civil magistrate has authority to, at the, the point of the sword, do certain things that are actually not aimed first at changing hearts as a primary. They're aimed at restraining evil. Which so is still a good. That's a good thing. And it would be better to have a good to have good laws and good magistrates, even if the if it wasn't the result of conversion. It would still be better to have good laws. But when we say all this, we're not we're not saying, yeah, next year this is all gonna happen. Uh no, we're saying let's or again, let's order our lives in the self government, the family government, and the church government, such that we can actually be the, the city on a hill where we are a representative model polis. I think the other thing, Brian, as you were talking about that, so many people in our country, they think, okay, so you think as Christians, post-mill Christians, that you're going to get control of the Republican Party in America? And I say, your vision is so small. The Republican. No, 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 no. <laughs> we're going to get control of everything. <laughs> Anything that you can think of, that's in the bucket we have control. 
because God is sovereign, yeah, we're acting in faith. And it it could take, and we anticipate it taking a long time. Yeah, Christ is king of kings. He's the king of the kings. He's the Lord of the lords. So when we say that that we're Christians, what we're saying is that we're bent on world domination. I mean, this is something that Christians need to recover. That when we say we're Christians, what we should understand that to mean is that we're bent on world domination. Not through the point of the sword. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have a divine power to tear down strongholds and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So we are aiming for world domination, not through M16s and tanks. We're aiming to wage spiritual war that would capture the hearts of humanity. Like that's what we're aiming for. And so over the long haul, and not only are we aiming for that, we believe that God in Christ is aiming for that and has promised that that will come about. And so... We want to thank you for listening to this episode. In this series of episodes, as we've unfolded this aspect of the new Christendom that, that we might call political theology, the city fathers and the state. And again, many of these things may seem far off over the horizon, but we make haste slowly, festinalente. We work, uh, we plod one step of obedience in the, in the next good work that the Lord has set before us that we might walk in it as his new creatures. And so we'd say, take heart, keep your hands to the plow, Don't be discouraged, but set your hand to the work with a trowel in one hand and the sword in the other. We'd like to thank our sponsors for this episode, Reformation Heritage Books, heritagebooks.org. Again, you got to start with your family, with yourself. You can pick up some of their great resources on family worship, on catechizing your children, or simply shaping your own soul into the image of Christ there and also Christendom Bible College. And we've got links in the description to all of these. They've got special book giveaway that they're doing in conjunction with our show. There are all sorts of uh, you know excellent resources they have. If you're looking for Christian high, higher education that is unbought, we would encourage you to check out their resources. Uh, but we do, again, want to thank you for listening in. And lastly, this episode is brought to you by our patrons. We have you know a great tribe of patrons on patreon.com who help make each one of these shows possible. And as a thank you, we do record a special after-hours show that's kind of like stepping into the King's Hall pub after work, share a drink and a toast, and we talk about whatever's on our mind in a very blue-collar, unscripted sort of way. Some of our best Chippewa jokes come in at that point. Uh, and our biggest our biggest laughs, you know, because it's not just about serious stuff, guys. you got to have the soundboard come out a little bit more. So if you'd like to join that, there's a link to our Patreon in the description. We'd really appreciate it if you jump on board and help make this show possible. The time and the energy and the resources that it takes uh, to make this show happen every week are not small. And so we do appreciate all of our patrons there. And we'd invite you to join us in that episode. And I believe we have a, a mug giveaway, which we do for all of our patrons. We rotate a different mug uh, for each month of the year. This episode, I think, is going to come out in July. And we have one of the most glorious mugs we've ever made so that you can signal your um, Christian-basedness as you drink your coffee at work. So sign up there, get your mug, and uh, we will see you next time in the King's Hall.